This is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. With this month's podcast, Sarah and I decided to change the format. Instead of Sarah reading the abstracts and me returning with the commentary, I will provide some commentary after each abstract. We hope that this will make the podcast more lively and avoid some of the repetition of our previous podcasts. If you like this format, let us know. If you have other suggestions for the podcast, we are interested in them as well. We want this to be as useful as possible for you, our readers and listeners. Let's get started. Our first paper this month is by Thigpen et al., and its title is Implementing the 2005 American Heart Association Guidelines, Including Use of the Impedance Threshold Device Improves Hospital Discharge Rate After In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. The objective of this study was to determine the impact of the 2005 American Heart Association CPR guidelines, including use of an impedance threshold device on survival after in-hospital cardiac arrest. Two community hospitals tracked outcomes after in-hospital cardiac arrest, pooled and compared their hospital discharge rates before and after implementing the 2005 guidelines in standardized protocols. This included use of the proper ventilation rate, allowing full chest wall recoil, continuous CPR following intubation, and the use of the impedance threshold device. They compared historical control data from a 12-month period at St. Cloud Hospital in St. Cloud, Minnesota, to data from a subsequent 18-month intervention phase. They also compared historical control data from a 12-month period at St. Dominic Hospital in Jackson, Mississippi, to a subsequent 12-month intervention phase. 507 patients received CPR during the study period. Patient age and sex were similar in the control and intervention groups. The combined hospital discharge rate for patients with an in-hospital cardiac arrest was 17.5% in the control group, which is similar to the national average, versus 28% in the intervention group. The greatest benefit of the intervention was in patients with an initial rhythm of pulseless electrical activity. Neurological function in survivors at hospital discharge was similar between the groups. The authors concluded that implementation of improved ways to increase circulation during CPR increased the in-hospital discharge rate by 60% compared to historical controls in two community hospitals. Thigpen and colleagues evaluated the impact of the newest CPR guidelines in two community hospitals in different parts of the United States. With implementation of these guidelines, there was a significant improvement in survival with similar neurologic function in the survivors. These results suggest that the newer CPR guidelines that focus on improved circulation may reduce hospital mortality from in-hospital sudden cardiac death. This should prompt other hospitals to consider whether they have adequately implemented these CPR standards. As Barnes points out in his editorial, respiratory therapists are represented on virtually every hospital CPR team and rapid response team. As such, respiratory therapists are in the position to provide leadership in this area, particularly as related to evidence-based approaches such as ventilation strategies and use of the impedance threshold device during CPR. (music) 
repeatability of the six-minute walk test in adolescents and adults with cystic fibrosis is by Ziegler et al. This was a prospective cross-sectional study. The authors included patients greater than 15 years of age attending an adult CF program. The patients underwent the six-minute walk test, pulmonary function tests, and clinical evaluation. A second six-minute walk test was performed following a rest period of 60 minutes. The mean walked distance in the first six-minute walk test was 583.5 meters, and in the second six-minute walk test, it was 590 meters. The mean difference between the first and second test was 0.6%, and the coefficient of variation was 104%. The authors concluded that, Although the six-minute walk test distance was reproducible, the wide limits of agreement exceeded the minimum important difference for this test. These findings indicate that, in a routine evaluation of CF patients, at least two six-minute walk tests are required on any testing occasion to obtain a reliable estimate of the six-minute walk test difference. The six-minute walk test is commonly used for the evaluation of exercise tolerance in patients with pulmonary and cardiac disease. Few studies have evaluated the reliability and validity of this test in patients with cystic fibrosis. Ziegler et al. found that, although the six-minute walk test distance was reproducible, the wide limits of agreement exceeded the minimum important difference for this test. As the authors correctly conclude, this suggests that, in the routine evaluation of patients with cystic fibrosis, at least two six-minute walk tests are required on any testing occasion to obtain a reliable estimate of the correct distance. We are pleased to publish seven papers this month from the New Horizons Symposium, Airway Management, Current Practice, and Future Directions. This symposium was presented as part of the 2009 AARC International Respiratory Congress in San Antonio, Texas. As a group, these papers provide a state-of-the-art overview of airway management. The first New Horizons paper is Emergency Airway Management by Gudzenko. Emergency airway management is associated with a high complication rate. Evaluating the patient prior to airway management is important to identify patients with increased risk of failed airways. Pre-oxygenation of critically ill patients is less effective in comparison to less sick patients. Induction agents are often required, but most induction agents are associated with hypotension during emergency intubation. Use of muscle relaxants is controversial for emergency intubation, but they are commonly used in the emergency department. Supervision of emergency airway management by attending physicians significantly decreases complications. Standardized algorithms may increase the success of emergency intubation. Attention should be paid to cardiopulmonary stability in the immediate post-intubation period. Emergency airway management is associated with a high complication rate. As discussed by Gudzenko et al., the complication rate associated with emergency airway management may be reduced by careful patient evaluation, appropriate pharmacology during intubation, and monitoring of cardiopulmonary stability in the immediate post-intubation period. This is an important message for respiratory therapists who are a part of the intubation team in North America. 
because respiratory therapists either assist with the intubation or in many cases perform the intubation, this paper is important for respiratory therapist practice. Next is the paper by Herford, The Video Revolution, A New View of Laryngoscopy. The development of less expensive, smaller, and more reliable video cameras has revolutionized the design of laryngoscopes and the process of endotracheal intubation. The term video laryngoscopy defines a broad range of devices, distinct from fiber optic bronchoscopes, in which a video camera is used in place of line of sight visualization to accomplish endotracheal intubation. Over a dozen laryngoscopes are marketed currently. Each model of video laryngoscope has its own unique strengths, weaknesses, and best applications. For the purposes of this review, video laryngoscopes are grouped into three different designs, stylets, guide channels, and video modifications of the traditional, usually Macintosh, laryngoscope blades. As described by Herford, the development of less expensive, smaller, and more reliable video cameras has revolutionized the design of laryngoscopes and the technique of endotracheal intubation. I like how he groups video laryngoscopes into three different designs, stylets, guide channels, and video modifications of traditional laryngoscope blades. His description of the strengths, weaknesses, and best applications for each device is the most comprehensive review written to date. Tracheal tubes designed to prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia. Do they make a difference? Is by Deem and Trigari. Ventilator-associated pneumonia, VAP, is a pervasive and expensive nosocomial infection that is largely related to instrumentation of the airway with an endotracheal tube, followed by microaspiration of contaminated secretions. VAP prevention will probably be most effective via a multifaceted approach, which includes meticulous attention to basic infection control methods during patient care, proper patient positioning, oral hygiene, and removal of the endotracheal tube as soon as it is indicated. Modification of the endotracheal tube to reduce microaspiration and or biofilm formation may also play an important role in VAP prevention. However, despite numerous studies of various such interventions, there is insufficient evidence upon which to base strong recommendations, and important safety concerns remain regarding the use of some devices. Most importantly, cost-effectiveness data are lacking for modified endotracheal tubes designed to prevent VAP. It is critical that future studies of endotracheal tubes designed to prevent VAP be adequately powered to demonstrate efficacy on important patient outcomes and safety, in addition to cost-effectiveness. Modification of the endotracheal tube to reduce microaspiration and or biofilm formation may play a role in the prevention of ventilator-associated pneumonia. As nicely reviewed by Deem and Trigari, these approaches include specialized cuffs, providing suction above the cuff, otherwise known as subglottic aspiration, silver coating of the tube, and combinations of these, 
Whether or not these newer endotracheal tube designs make a clinical difference remains to be determined. As the authors correctly state, despite numerous studies of various such interventions, there is insufficient evidence upon which to base strong recommendations. Moreover, important safety concerns remain regarding the use of some of these devices and their cost-effectiveness. The next paper from the New Horizons Symposium is Tracheostomy, Why, When, and How by Durbin. Tracheostomy is one of the most frequent procedures performed in ICU patients. Of the many purported advantages of tracheostomy, only patient comfort, early movement from the ICU, and shorter ICU and hospital stay have significant supporting data. Even the belief of increased safety may not be greater with a tracheostomy. Various techniques for tracheostomy have been developed. However, use of percutaneous dilation techniques with bronchoscopic control continue to expand in popularity throughout the world. Tracheostomy should occur as soon as the need for prolonged intubation, in other words, longer than 14 days, is identified. Accurate prediction of this duration by day 3 remains elusive. Mortality is not worse with tracheostomy and may be improved with earlier provision, especially in head-injured and critically ill medical patients. The timing of when to do a tracheostomy continues to be individualized, should include daily weaning assessment, and can generally be made within seven days of intubation. Bedside techniques are safe and efficient, allowing timely tracheostomy with low morbidity. Tracheostomy tubes are placed for a variety of reasons. Durbin provides a very nice review of the state-of-the-art of tracheostomy, which is one of the most frequent procedures performed in the ICU. As he points out, the only advantage of tracheostomy with supporting evidence are earlier discharge from the ICU and the hospital. The appropriate timing of tracheostomy in mechanically ventilated patients remains unclear, as it has been for many years. But many clinicians will agree that it should occur as soon as the need for prolonged intubation is identified. Increasingly, bedside techniques to perform tracheostomy, such as percutaneous dilation techniques, are used. These are safe and efficient, allowing timely tracheostomy with low morbidity. When to change a tracheostomy tube is by White et al. Knowing when to change a tracheostomy tube is important for optimal management of all patients with tracheostomy tubes. The first tracheostomy tube change, performed one to two weeks after placement, carries some risk and should be performed by a skilled operator in a safe environment. The risk associated with changing the tracheostomy tube then usually diminishes over time as the tracheocutaneous tract matures. A malpositioned tube can be a source of patient distress and patient ventilator asynchrony, and is important to recognize and correct. Airway endoscopy can be helpful to ensure optimal positioning of a replacement tracheostomy tube. Some of the specialized tracheostomy tubes available on the market are discussed. There are few data available to guide the timing of routine tracheostomy tube changes. Some guidelines are suggested.
There are few data available to guide the timing of routine tracheostomy tube changes. Thus, the paper by White et al. is welcome. The first tracheostomy tube change carries some risk and should be performed by a skilled clinician in a safe environment. The risk associated with changing the tracheostomy tube then usually diminishes over time as the stoma matures. Respiratory therapists are often the clinicians responsible for tracheostomy tube changes. Endoscopy can be useful to ensure optimal positioning of a replacement tracheostomy tube. Our next paper is Tracheostomy Decannulation by O'Connor and White. Tracheostomy tubes are placed for a variety of reasons, including failure to wean from mechanical ventilation, inability to protect the airway due to impaired mental status, inability to manage excessive secretions, and upper airway obstruction. A tracheostomy tube is required in approximately 10% of patients receiving mechanical ventilation and allows the patient to move to a step-down unit or long-term care hospital. The presence of a tracheostomy tube in the trachea can cause complications including tracheal stenosis, bleeding, infection, aspiration pneumonia, and fistula formations from the trachea to either the esophagus or the innominate artery. Final removal of the tracheostomy tube is an important step in the recovery from chronic critical illness and can usually be done once the indication for the tube placement has resolved. Although much has been written about the timing of extubation, little has been written about the timing of tracheostomy decannulation. Issues related to decannulation are nicely discussed by O'Connor and White. Because the presence of a tracheostomy tube can be the source of a number of complications, it should be removed as soon as clinically possible. Final removal of the tracheostomy tube is an important step in the recovery from chronic critical illness, and decannulation should occur once the indication for the tube placement has resolved. The final paper from the New Horizons Symposium is Tracheostomy, Pediatric Considerations by Deutsch. Pediatric patients for whom tracheostomy is a consideration have different anatomy, medical conditions, and prognoses than adults. Even the tracheostomy tubes are different. Indications for pediatric tracheostomy generally include bypassing airway obstruction, providing access for prolonged mechanical ventilation, and facilitating tracheobronchial toilet. Subglottic stenosis is an important indication for tracheostomy in children, and its etiology, prevention, and alternative options for management are presented. Discussion includes the benefits, risks, impacts on families, techniques for tracheostomy tube changes, and alternatives to tracheostomy with illustrative photographs and diagrams. As described by Deutsch, pediatric patients for whom tracheostomy is considered have different anatomy, medical conditions, and prognoses than adults. Even the tracheostomy tubes are different between children and adults. Subglottic stenosis is an important indication for tracheostomy in children. This paper includes very nice and important discussions of the benefits, risks, impact on families, techniques for tracheostomy tube changes, and alternatives to tracheostomy.
We published two case reports this month. The first, by Fushilo et al., presents a case of severe respiratory and skeletal muscles involvement in a carrier of dysphalinopathy with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. The second is by Chen et al. and describes a case of mediastinal teratoma with pulmonary involvement presenting as massive hemoptysis in two patients. The teaching case of the month is by Schumann et al. and describes the removal of an aspirated foreign body with a flexible cryoprobe. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.